This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The earthquake levelled parts of northwest Syria that were already devastated by an ongoing civil war. The earthquake has brought attention back, but those millions of people in Syria have been struggling now for years, and it's become a forgotten crisis. Impartial humanitarian assistance should never be hindered, nor politicised. We have to get access. We have to be able to reach the affected population. People, honestly, people ask me, why? Why is this happening to us? They just came out of a bitter conflict that's been taking years. The question goes, what do they do next? Where do they go next? People have, I would say, sadly, lost hope. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. I'm Daniel Warner here in Geneva. And today, Danny, we're going to talk about the truly devastating earthquakes in Turkey. And in particular, we're going to talk about the earthquakes in Syria. Because our listeners will know a certain amount already about what's happened, especially in Turkey. So what we're going to do is take a closer look at just how complex this disaster in this particular region is. Well, the complexity begins in Syria. The it's the earthquake took place in a war zone, in a civil war that's been going on for 12 years, and the particular area is held by rebels. Now, in order to get aid to the Syrian victims, the people need permission from the Syrian government, which is not simple. The United Nations Security Council passed a resolution in 2014 saying that there were four places that material could go from Turkey to Syria. Since 2021, the four crossings have been reduced to one, remembering that China and Russia on the Security Council support the government of Syria. The UN has to relitigate every six months how many crossings there are. So it is complex as far as Syria is concerned. It becomes extremely political. This is why humanitarian aid is complex in this region. Complex indeed, as Danny highlighted there, a lot of political challenges. Of course, always after an earthquake, huge logistical challenges and financial ones, money. But let's start with the first response, because we're here in Geneva. It's the world's humanitarian capital. The United Nations is here. The Red Cross is here. And these are the groups that we expect to swing into action when a disaster like this happens. But what they rely on, and if you yourself have ever been in any kind of natural disaster, a flood, God forbid, an earthquake, you will know especially in the first few hours, it's the first responder partner organizations already on the ground who you rely on. So I've been talking to some of them in Syria. Let's hear first from Whale Darwish. He is country director in Syria for Caritas, Switzerland. I caught up with him in his office in Damascus. He's hardly slept this last week. He gave me a picture of the situation in and around Aleppo. I can tell you, sadly enough, the majority of the people who have left their homes due to the earthquake, 
Some of them are staying in public shelters. Some of them are sleeping in public gardens. Some of them public buildings. A lot are sleeping in their cars. And this has also has affected our staffing. A lot of our partner staff are from Aleppo, are from Latakia, are from Hama, are from the affected areas. They themselves have been sleeping outside their homes. So imagine on that layer of response, you also have the people who are the first responders themselves affected. This is the, what we're looking at at this stage. When you talk about a city like Aleppo, we know that it was the scene of, of bitter conflict a few years ago, 2016. You know, it has only just started to recover. This must be absolutely devastating for the citizens of Aleppo. Yes, I can sadly tell you this is the situation. People, honestly, are at a stage where I am actually being asked, my teams ask me, the people ask me, our partners ask us, why? Why is this happening to us? They just came out of a bitter conflict that's been taking years. People finally started to slowly think of hope and rebuilding their futures. This quake just came, I would always say, like I was telling everyone, this is like the worst time. A quake, an earthquake is never coming in a good time, but specifically for the people of Syria, it just came from the worst time ever. This will now set back a lot of the plans for people's futures. People now went back to ask what's next. I can tell you, um, the question goes, what do they do next? Where do they go next? This is where people are uh, at the stage. People have, I would say, sadly, lost hope. Well, that was Whale Darwish talking to us from Damascus. Danny, before I bring you in to comment on that, I've got one more voice from Aleppo. This is Pastor Haratoun Selimian. Now, he has opened his church to people made homeless by the quake. And his main concern when he talked to me is not so much the lack of homes, the lack of clean water. He's really, really worried about the effect on people's spirits, on their mental health. Today, I'm talking about psychological injuries that people are facing. Now, those who are alive, they are alive in a half capacity in their spirit about living and making themselves to be uh, adjusted with the new realities. And the fear factor is the only long-lasting thing which will remain with them. Today, people are afraid of going home. Nobody is willing to leave the halls of the churches. Even if we are going to extend to them a helping hand, they say homes are not safe. We don't go home. It's it's tragic hearing that, isn't it? I mean, home is the place we are supposed to feel safest. The two organizations have both been working with Swiss Solidarity in that region. After all, there are four million people, some of them are Syrian refugees in Turkey. And the explanations about hope and fear are really emotional reactions to what's going on. Here in Geneva, we can give political, intellectual comments, but how does one deal with the loss of hope? How does one deal with fear about going back? Uh, these are psychological things that it's very difficult for us to imagine, and we can only hope that non-governmental organizations with solidarity can somehow help the people, but the emotional things obviously are very deep. 
I think that's right. And as you said, Switzerland, like many European countries, has been raising money from the public to help both Syria and Turkey. That's, as you say, through the Swiss Solidarity Fund. But they too, of course, their entire motivation is impartial humanitarian aid. I had the chance this week to talk to Mirin Bengoa. Now, she's director of Swiss Solidarity. She's been working all week. Swiss Solidarity has already raised millions of francs. That appeal is ongoing. Mirin, she's worked in a lot of uh, post-disaster humanitarian crisis, so she knows what's needed. But take a listen. She's really, really aware of the specific challenges this time to deliver it. They will provide the assistance to displaced populations, uh, sheltering, protection, uh, non-food items, uh, food assistance, cash assistance, whatever is needed in uh, the different locations. We also know that access altogether to the victims is going to be difficult due to the complex circumstances of this uh, disaster. Complex is almost an understatement, actually, isn't it? Because um, we have heard over the last week, not just the usual, which seems to happen after every earthquake, where's the support? We have the issue of access to northwest Syria, which appears to have been very hard hit by this earthquake. And yet the routes to bring aid into it are very limited. What are the challenges you are facing just now? As the entire humanitarian sector, we are uh, awaiting uh, to hear what negotiations can take place with regards to creating proper access to the displaced and, and affected people in Syria. We have to make sure we reach the most vulnerable. We are uh, very conscious of the difficulty and it will be a case-by-case -case scenario. Would you like to see more border crossings open from Turkey into northwest Syria? Well, as a non-state actor and a private foundation, we should not advocate for for that in particular. What we hope for is that negotiations between states and different uh, stakeholders takes place in a way that allows for the alleviation of suffering. Is it frustrating to you, though, because we have seen the different political maneuverings between different interested parties? As a humanitarian, is it sometimes frustrating to you to see this being a key factor in really whether people in need get aid or not? Well, as a humanitarian myself, of course, the, the frustration is part of our work. We, we always face these situations where the needs of people are not necessarily the priority. Um, and what we try to think about now and to strategize over is how we can support with the funds that we uh, collected the best possible interventions in Syria, about 15 million people were already in a dire need of humanitarian assistance uh, through uh, the impacts of the war and all the different uh, conflicts uh, happening there. So in, in our particular case, we are uh, only uh, going to work through our trusting uh, relationships through the Swiss NGOs that we generally fund and to uh, activate the funding when and how will abide by our quality principles. It's interesting, Danny, listening to that, isn't it? How very, very cautious Mirin is. She and her partner organizations on the ground, they want to get aid in to whoever needs it, wherever they are. And yet 
you know, she's just very cautious reading between the lines of what she says. It's don't offend anyone. Keep on quietly, quietly asking. Well, I mean, remember the difficulty of getting aid into a territory that's held by rebels. In order to get to Syria, you need the government approval, and therefore she is frustrated. The Kurds, for example, in the region have declared a unilateral ceasefire if the government respects it. The basic is that you have to get government approval. It's interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, it's not the first time um, that we have seen blockages to aid in conflict zones because one side or, or another doesn't want the other side to get help. I mean, I can remember in, in former Yugoslavia, you could watch UN convoys of aid for days on roads while one side or another just stood there and said, sorry, I don't think you've got permission to pass. I'm waiting for my colonel and he's he's out for the day. Or we just need to check your supplies again. They unpack everything, take what they want, repack it, and then say, now we're going to have to have another check. We saw that in Syria in besieged areas. We've seen it very recently, actually, in Tigray. There is a quote from a Syrian government official that they don't want the aid to go to what he called terrorist groups. So the fact that this region is held by rebels against the Syrian government makes it very difficult for the government to say, "Okay, you can give them aid. Yes. Now it seems they are have relaxed a little bit. And they say they will permit this what is called cross-line aid deliveries from government into um, opposition-controlled areas. Let's not forget that the UN and the ICRC estimate that 4.1 million people are dependent on humanitarian aid in and around Idlib, and most of them are women and children. Let's let's just take a listen. I think we, we've we've been pushing towards the concerns of the aid agencies to get their aid to everyone who needs it. And this is why we've seen some very senior aid officials head to Syria to make their point very clearly, publicly, and we assume behind closed doors to the government. But what is most important now is that we gain access to all parts of northern Syria to help people who need our urgent support. Impartial humanitarian assistance should never be hindered, nor politicized. We have to get access. We have to be able to reach the affected population. We're also, as you know, looking for authorization from the Security Council to open up a couple of extra crossing points to maximize the uh, volume of supplies we get through to the people of the Northwest. It's an open and shut case on humanitarian terms why we need those extra uh, crossing points now to save lives. So the people we heard there, Danny, were Mirjana Spoljaric. She's president of the International Committee of the Red Cross. She went to Aleppo. Martin Griffiths, the UN's emergency relief chief, he was there on the border between Turkey and Syria, both saying, no more politics, please. We need to get the aid in. We've had some signs that they may have some success, haven't we? Well, we shouldn't forget also, Imogen, that Syria is under sanctions. Now, the United States, as a positive thing, has relaxed its sanctions, said it has for six months. But on the negative side, 
Syria is asking for more sanctions to be reduced in order to let the material come through. So it is an area where the civil war going on, but it's also an area where Syria is under sanctions. So the question is, what do you do about the sanctions? And the quote from the head of the IRC reminds me of a famous quote by Cornelius Somaruga, then president of the ICRC in 1992, before the United Nations General Assembly, when he said specifically Politics should be separated from humanitarianism. It should not interfere with us helping victims in war or in some kind of disaster. So the problem of separating politics from humanitarianism in this particular situation is very, very complicated. Very, very complicated. I'll add a couple more complexities into the mix that I discovered yesterday when I was recording interviews for this program. Um, I talked to someone uh, in Syria who said that the US relaxation was meaningless and that what um, was really needed was a relaxation on banking transactions because in a massive humanitarian operation, you need cash. And Syrian banks are under sanctions. So that, I think, is very unlikely to be an outcome of the the, the US being a little bit more favourable to Syria. The other thing I heard was that although the Syrian government has agreed cross-line operations for aid into opposition-held areas, some of the opposition groups haven't agreed. That's what's claimed, or have terms, they would like to be able to distribute some of the aid themselves. And here again, we get both sides are saying, we don't want the Syrian government to look like the good guys coming here with aid. And the Syrian government saying, we don't want the opposition to look like the good guys helping um, people who need aid in these cut-off areas. I mean, When? You have to ask yourself, when do they forget about that and just say, people need aid? Doesn't matter where they are. Let's just get it there. One of the things early on, Imogen, was that the Syrian government wanted all the aid to pass through Damascus. Uh, Then it said that the aid should pass through the Committee of the Red Cross, Syrian Committee of the Red Cross, with some form of UN supervision. So whereas the NGOs and other people are saying, let us do our job, the Syrian government is still saying we want to have some kind of control. Yes, and I think that is not going to change. I think it would be very, very interesting to see over the next two to three weeks, how these promises are actually fulfilled. I have a very uh, old uh, colleague of mine who always said, looking at these promises by politicians, by governments, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. One thing I want to return to, though, which we're talking specifically about the earthquake, but Syria, of course, was in a major humanitarian crisis before this earthquake even struck. Whale referred to that when he said, people are asking, why us? Why us? Now, someone else I talked to who knows Syria very well is James McDowell. He works for Medair, providing support, medical support, food, shelter to people in crisis or conflict 
affected zones. Again, a partner of Swiss Solidarity. Now, you'll hear him. Um, he too has slept very little this week. So pardon the fact that he sounds exhausted. He does have some very interesting things to say about Syria's ongoing humanitarian crisis. In some ways, it's a forgotten crisis. It shouldn't be. We've seen funding cut in half um, in the past year, even. Uh, a place with, again, rising needs, um, but funding is, is is getting less and less. This earthquake, it just adds to the needs. It compounds the, the crisis. And um, there is more attention on Syria at the moment. Uh, I don't know for how long. It seems like things could be opening up a bit more. Uh, we may be able to get items in from the outside. Uh, more funding may be there, but to be seen, to be honest, it's it's um, everyone is seeing it on the nightly news. And, and probably a lot of people haven't thought about Syria for a while unless they're from Syria, or have family there. And um, yeah, so we're hoping that in this crisis that more light can be shed on the situation in Syria. It is very complex. Probably don't want to get into all the details of how complex it is. But um, when it comes to need, uh, it's just massive at the moment. The humanitarian community, of course, works on these fundamental principles of neutrality and impartiality. And I know, and I, you do not want to get drawn into any of the the politics around this, but I can imagine you would support the calls from, for example, the ICRC and UN OCHA that there should be no politicization around support for Syria at this point, that it is simply it's about bringing aid to human beings in need. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. This is why we exist uh, to respond uh, to people in need, no matter you know where they're at, uh, what country, their race, their religion. Um, it's based on need. Um, and yeah, you know, we we stick to being independent, impartial, neutral. Um, but there is a lot of politics involved, unfortunately. And um, and so really our biggest concern is is uh, to reach people who are most in need and uh, especially with life saving activities. And so um, <laughs> we're moving forward. We're doing what we can. Um, but obviously. It is a geopolitically, it's it's a it's a very complex place, um, and yeah, yeah, we're doing the best we can. Well, Danny, I think we can only offer our um, wholehearted support to people like uh, James McDowell. On that note, um, let's hear some final words from Whale Darwish and from Harutun Selmian. They are there in Syria, Harutun. All his life, he is Syrian himself. Whale, originally from Lebanon, spent many years in Syria, loves the country. Here are their hopes and concerns for the days and weeks going forward. I wish that I could see that after this earthquake, also people's conscience also uh, have been shaken so that they can start talking with each other. They can start exchanging needs and they exchanging goods. So this is the time of reconciliation and sharing as uh, the same people living on the same geography, which is called Syria. I wish I could see that. To not forget what's happening in two or three weeks, 
This is going to take all of us a lot of time working together. This will involve everyone. We all need to work together to reestablish some normality, to try to serve the people in need. This is not a one-week or two-week process, Imagine uh, This is not at all a short-term process. That's a long-term process. So I need people to remember that, yes, it's now on the news. In two weeks from now, please remember that the people are still outside. There's a lot of work to be done. We all need to stand together, advocate, and try to support the people of Syria with whatever we can. So some very heartfelt appeals from Haratoon and Whale there. Um, why don't you let this earthquake shake your consciences and do the right thing? And please don't forget about Syria, because as we know, the damage caused by an earthquake lasts so much, so much longer than the earthquake itself. Danny, the UN has been struggling here to do what it's supposed to do. How do you think this leaves the reputation of the United Nations? I think there's a certain frustration within the United Nations that they couldn't react quicker. And I certainly think that the people on the ground are frustrated as well. There is some good news. The good news being that President Bashar al-Assad of Syria has agreed with Martin Griffiths, the head of the UN humanitarian organization, to increase the two crossings for material and people to come through. That's the good news. The bad news is that Martin Griffiths had to ask permission from the ruler of Syria in order to get in. So finally, Imogen, here in Geneva, the humanitarian capital, people want to help material people out there. But at the end of the day, it's in New York, in the Security Council, and the question of countries, national interest and politics, which is dominating once again. Nail on the head, Danny. As usual, we feel this tension often, don't we, between Geneva and New York. Let's hope that better late than never, the humanitarian imperative prevails and that the millions, literally millions of people in northwest Syria, regardless of who they may have sided with at one point or the other, there are children there, there are homeless people there, there are families who just want some peace and some shelter. Let's hope the aid gets to them. Danny Warner, thank you very much for all your insights on Inside Geneva. Thank you to all the people who took part. Thanks to Swiss Solidarity um, for providing some interview partners for us. And just to support them a little bit, their appeal for earthquake survivors in Syria and Turkey is ongoing. That's it from Inside Geneva for this week. Thank you all for listening. And just a quick reminder, there is a very special edition of Inside Geneva coming up next week to mark one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. We'll be asking experts in conflict resolution how to make peace. Why is ending war so difficult? What's an acceptable compromise? And what might be out of the question? That's out on February 23rd and, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening to Inside Geneva.
discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.